The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you, inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No-cost gen ed provided by Strayer University affiliates of Field Learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what's the deal with those giant turkey legs that they serve at Renaissance Fairs and Disney World? Plus, Coors Light has just launched a color-changing nail polish that lets you know when your beer is cold enough to drink. And Cambridge Dictionary's perplexing choice of a word of the year that most Brits have never heard of. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Here in the U.S., Thanksgiving is less than a week away. Depending on the size of turkey that you bought, you should already be moving it from the freezer to the fridge to thaw. And Thanksgiving is the big day for turkeys to shine in America, but if you want to gorge yourself on a supersized serving of turkey any other day of the year, there are two places you can go. Disney World or a Renaissance Fair. Both have popularized the indulgent practice of chomping on a huge turkey leg while walking around their parks as if it were as ordinary or as moderately sized as a corn dog or a popsicle. Personally, a turkey leg is my favorite part of a renaissance fair, and there's a lot that I love about ren fairs, so that's a pretty high bar, but I can't go to one without getting a turkey leg. But why did Ren Fairs and Disney World start selling these, as the New York Times described them in 2013, quote, bulbous, chewy, piping hot drumsticks the size of Fred Flintstone's forearm? So the first Renaissance Fair was held in 1963, organized by Phyllis and Ron Patterson as a fundraiser for their local public radio station in Laurel Canyon, California. Thousands of people attended that first fair, so the Pattersons did it again, next time moving it to Paramount Movie Ranch and taking advantage of the more hyper-realistic sets. Throughout the 1970s and beyond, as the Pattersons continued their Rin Fair, the concept took off across the country, with numerous other organizations running similar events. Renaissance fairs are typically set in England. So the first question about this turkey leg is, is it even historically accurate? Turkeys are native to the Americas. That's part of why we eat them on Thanksgiving. Not because they were eaten at the first Thanksgiving, that meal's entree was more likely deer, or because Benjamin Franklin thought that they should be our national bird. That's actually a myth based on a misreading of a satirical piece Franklin did actually write, linked to the segment I did on that two years ago is in the show notes. But rather because when white Americans pushed for Thanksgiving to become a national holiday in order to celebrate their Americanness as distinct from the British and as distinct from newer immigrants and their cultures, they selected as the main dish a bird native to our own continent. 
Sarah Josepha Hale, the editor of Godey's Ladies Book for several decades in the mid-19th century, who was the most ardent proponent of making Thanksgiving a national holiday, was also instrumental in cementing turkey and stuffing as the dishes of choice for the occasion. So turkeys are native to the Americas, which means would they have been around in England in the era in which Renaissance fairs typically depict? Well, it depends on the fair. According to Mental Floss, the Pattersons originally intended their fair to be during the Elizabethan era, the reign of Queen Elizabeth I from 1557 to 1603. Colonialism and trade with the New World was fully alive by that point. Science Daily notes that the first turkeys were introduced to England by Member of Parliament William Strickland in the 1520s, a full three decades before Elizabeth took to the throne. And by the time she was queen, turkeys had become mainstays in the English diet, at least for special occasions. In fact, turkeys were fairly popular at Christmas dinners in England long before even the first mythologized Thanksgiving in America, let alone it becoming a federal holiday in 1870. And again, the push for Thanksgiving to become a national holiday was led by Sarah Josepha Hale, who, through her work as the editor of a popular ladies' publication, also helped make turkey the centerpiece of the holiday. But over in England, people often credit Charles Dickens and his novella A Christmas Carol with helping turkey become the go-to entree for a holiday meal over there. And you could even make the argument, as some people do, that that idea bled over to the United States, contributing to the Thanksgiving trend here. So both Dickens and Hale are sometimes credited with that. And I bring that up mostly because both Dickens and Hale also helped popularize the idea of putting up Christmas trees inside our homes at Christmas time. The two of them defined so much of what we know about this time of year in the U.S. and the U.K. Hale also, incidentally, wrote the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. So, there you go. Three things that you probably thought had a much longer history. Turkeys at Thanksgiving, Christmas trees decorated in our homes, and Mary Had a Little Lamb. All created or popularized by one woman in the mid-19th century. I'm simplifying it all a bit, of course, and Hale herself was a complex woman, supportive of women's education and employment, but not of women's suffrage, so look her up if you want to learn more. But getting back on track here, turkeys were absolutely already being eaten in England during the Elizabethan era, and many Renaissance fairs do keep with the Elizabethan era theme, with actors taking on the role of the queen, her court, and famous figures of the era like Sir Francis Drake and William Shakespeare, but other fairs go back further and set them in the Middle Ages, a time when, as Mental Floss put it, quote, turkey meat was as common in Europe as, say, Skittles, end quote. Although, as Mental Floss continues, quote, that said, many fairs are much less concerned with period precision than with celebrating our collective portrait of medieval times, which, considering the number of people who show up dressed as elves and wizards, is probably just as influenced by fantasy content as it is by anything we learned in school. And pointing out the historical inaccuracy of a person's lunch seems a little irrelevant when you're standing near someone cosplaying a centaur. End quote. So, giant turkey legs at Ren Fairs makes about as much sense as anything else. But when and why did Disney World start selling them? 
It all started in the early 90s with a man named Dave Jarrett. Starting as an oyster shucker at Captain Jack's in the Walt Disney World Village Shopping Center in 1977, Jarrett steadily rose through the ranks to eventually become convention manager at the Magic Kingdom. And in 1989, after witnessing the turkey leg monstrosities at a renaissance fair, he decided to pitch the idea to his team. And apparently, he was nearly laughed out of the meeting, but somehow still convinced them to take the risk. And apparently, it paid off. Quoting again from Mental Floss, At first, guests could only find the glistening drumsticks at one stand in Magic Kingdom's Frontierland, right near the Big Al's Coonskin Caps kiosk. But over the next several years, the snack not only spread to other areas of Orlando's Disney World, but also other Disney locations. Sometimes it was marketed to match a certain part of the park. When Disney World launched Animal Kingdom in 1998, for example, its turkey legs were labeled Dinosaur Bones. Turkey leg ascendancy even started creeping outside the culinary sphere. During a 1997 overhaul of Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean ride, one animatronic swashbuckler who had heretofore wielded a woman's shoe and negligee was given a turkey leg to brandish instead. And it wasn't long before other amusement parks decided to take a page out of Disney's cookbook. Universal's Islands of Adventure had turkey legs on offer when it opened in 1999. The Texas water park Schlitterbahn had been selling them at least as far back as 1992. Six Flags and Bush Gardens eventually followed suit as well. Nowadays, chances are pretty good that you'll see someone go into town on a turkey leg at any given theme park, fair, or festival in the U.S. End quote. Turkey legs as a grab-and-go snack, just as American as turkeys at Thanksgiving. And like so much else in our lives, it's thanks to Disney. And in case you've ever looked at the turkey on your Thanksgiving table and recalled the giant turkey leg that you had over the summer at a Renaissance fair and felt like things just didn't add up, the turkeys that we typically cook at Thanksgiving are females, the smaller of the two turkey sexes called hens. The turkeys whose legs are taken for Disney parks and renaissance fairs are the much larger males, or toms. The toms also look a lot more like the typical depictions of turkeys. So next time you see some Thanksgiving decorations or a Macy's parade float with a smiling Tom the turkey and think how sadistic it is that we're giving a happy persona to this animal that we're about to eat the slaughtered remains of, don't worry, it's not him we're eating. It's just the female turkeys. He's safe. For one day, anyways, until the mouse gets his hands on him. Because everything Y2K is cool again, I could have guessed that color-changing nail polish is back in style, but I would not have guessed that the latest one on the market would not be marketed at tweens who want nail polish that changes colors based on their mood, but rather marketed towards legal adults who want to know when their beer is cold enough to drink. That is the niche market Coors Light is aiming at with their new nail polish. Called Chill Polish, it's a silver-colored nail polish that turns blue if the glass of beer you're holding is cold enough to chill the glass. CNN helpfully specifies that this would work with any cold beverage, not just Coors Light. Now, not being a Coors Light drinker myself, I did not realize that there is actually precedent for this color-changing technology being deployed by the brand. Quoting Food & Wine, 
Different styles of beer have different ideal serving temperatures, but for Coors Light, only one temp will suffice, as cold as the Rockies. To hammer that point home, since 2007, the brand has offered color-changing labels to let drinkers know when their Coors Light is properly chilled. Most people who've consumed a can of Coors Light in the past decade have seen how the can or bottle label's color-changing ink turns the mountains blue when the liquid inside has reached appropriate coldness. But what about when you're drinking Coors Light in a pint glass, the brand asked. With that in mind, the brewing giant teamed up with nail polish experts at Le Chat to create a color-changing polish that goes from gray to blue when its temperature drops to a level acceptable for drinking a Coors Light. End quote. Now, maybe I'm just being stereotypical here, but I didn't really think of women or people who enjoy wearing nail polish as the target audience of Coors Light, so this seems like a bit of an odd stunt to me. But I also kind of love it, you know? Like, I would love it if it really took off with tailgating bros who really care about their Coors Light being cold enough. You know, like, dude, are you wearing nail polish? Uh, yeah, bro, do you not care about getting the most exquisite experience from your Coors Lights? In any case, you can buy the Chill Polish for $7 on Coors' merch website, where you can also buy lip balm, Christmas ornaments, a shower beer holder, and a funnel to attach to the top of your can of Coors Light when you have just a few sips left in order to attract the mosquitoes away from you and your fresh can of Coors Light and towards this funnel which Coors calls the Thirst Trap. Incredible. And speaking of beverage companies releasing non-beverage products, best-tasting seltzer brand Topo Chico has just announced their first-ever album. Released exclusively on a bright yellow vinyl record, the album is an EP featuring songs from five different emerging artists and was recorded in Topo Chico's new recording studio, The Yellow Room, in Seattle. The recording studio is a shared space where local artists are invited to record their music for free and the proceeds of this album will go back to the artists. The artists featured on this first album are Cade Legat, Chris Orlowski, Modern Days, Sea Salt, and Warren Dunes. The album is available exclusively on VinylMePlease.com. More info at the Magnetic Magazine link in the show notes. Yesterday, I told you about the 500 new words just added to the latest edition of the official Scrabble Dictionary, and earlier this month, I shared the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year. Tis the season for these end-of-year selections, so here's another one. Cambridge Dictionary in the United Kingdom has declared the word Homer as the word of the year. Homer as in home run in baseball a game that is not really played in the UK. So why was this very American word picked as the UK word of the year? Apparently, because of Wordle. When the word Homer was the correct word in the game in May of this year, it confused a lot of British English speakers, and many of them turned to the dictionary to look up what the heck that word meant. So much so that the dictionary says it was searched 75,000 times on their website, becoming the highest spiking word of the year. So in terms of sheer numbers, this makes sense, but to me it is still a bit of an odd choice to pick an American slang term that it was clearly indicated British people are unfamiliar with as the word of the year. 
especially when words of the year are more often words that are reflective of an overall theme of the year. In 2021, for example, Cambridge Dictionary picked the word perseverance. In 2020, they picked quarantine. 2015 was austerity. But the dictionary appears to be making two related points with this pick. First, five-letter Wordle answers absolutely dominated their search results this year. And two, that was especially true on days when the correct answer to Wordle was the American spelling of a word, or a word more common over here. So the dictionary, with this Word of the Year announcement, is seeking to highlight the curious differences between the two versions of English. The dictionary wrote in their announcement, quote, The differences between British and American English are always of interest, not just to learners of English, but to English speakers globally, and word games have always been a popular combination of education and entertainment. We've seen those two areas come together in the public conversations about Wordle and the way five-letter words have taken over the search data on Cambridge Dictionary's website this year. End quote. And publishing manager Wendelin Nichols continued, quote, Perhaps it's no wonder that people enjoy the focus and mental challenge of a simple word game that can be a shared experience with family and friends, whether they're physically together or not, at a time of volatility and prolonged recovery from a global pandemic. Even the complaints about the choice of words seem to be part of the fun. End quote. Well, if Nichols sees complaining about choice of words as fun, then the decision to pick Homer as the Cambridge Dictionary Word of the Year and the mild confusion that's causing makes a bit more sense. The opportunity to educate on the differences between British and American English and the various features of the Cambridge Dictionary website that are geared towards that all makes sense. But in a year of such turmoil in the United Kingdom, I am kind of shocked that they went in such a lackluster direction. Although, perhaps that was exactly the point. Well, that is going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend.